0: There is something fascinating about time, and that is that sometimes things that seem to be very far apart in time are actually the closest together. What does that mean? Think about a calendar. A calendar, in a certain sense, is linear. One thing happens after another after another. Whatever happened in the past is behind us. There are things that are coming up ahead, and we are currently in the present. It's a linear calendar, right? We go from one month to the next month to the next month. But at the same time, there is also a cyclical nature to time that even though we are in the month of March in the year of 2022, and this exact month and year will never happen again, the month of March will come back around next year. That every year, over and over again, even though we are in a new month and a new time, in a certain sense, we are also just part of a cycle. That the year goes over and over and over again. What's very interesting to note then is specifically in terms of the holidays. That if you think about it, Purim and Pesach are the two holidays that are closest together. As we know right now, it is Purim in just one week. It is going to be Purim. But also in another month, and I know I might get some looks for saying this, but in another month, it's going to be Pesach. So Parham and Pesach are the closest together. But if we are technically looking at the Jewish calendar that begins with the month of Nisan, that the Torah teaches us that Nisan is the first month, then Adar is the last month, meaning that while Purim directly comes before Pesach, Purim and Pesach are also the bookends of the year. They are the holidays that are the furthest apart. Pesach is the first holiday of the year and Purim is the final holiday of the year. So when I started thinking about this, the fact that Purim and Pesach are both close together while also being the bookends to the year, I decided to look into well, is there any connection between Purim and Pesach? So first, we see in the Gemara Masechet Tanis, the Gemara tells us famously, "Mishenichnas Av Mema'atim Besimcha." When the month of Av comes in, our Simcha is minimized, our happiness is minimized. Amara vihuda beray dirav shmua barshilat mashme dirav kashim shemin shenachnas av memat bimsimcha similarly to how our happiness is minimized when we enter into the month of av kach shemin adar amar bimsimcha when we enter into the month of adar our happiness is maximized our happiness grows rashi comments on this gemara mishnechnas adar ymei nisim hayu Hayuli Yisrael. Rashi comments, what is Mishanich Adar?" He comments and says, there are two days of Nisim that are to Am Yisrael, Purim and And these Yemei Nisim, these are Purim and Pesach. Then later on in the Gemara Masechet Megillah, Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Mikra him Bechol shana v'shana. Rabbi Eliezer ber Yosi Yossi Sivar, Bechol shana v'shana. Adar Hasama Adar Hasama what is this Gemara talking about? This Gemara is discussing in a month that is like the in a year that is like a year we are in now, which is a leap year, what month do we observe Purim? And there is an entire debate going on should we be celebrating Parim in the first Adar, and Adar Aleph, or should we be celebrating Parim in Adar Bet? Should we be celebrating in both? Should we be studying, should we be observing certain aspects in one month and certain aspects in another month? And the first suggestion that is made is that we should observe Parim Adar HaSamach Leshvat in Adar Aleph, which is the month of Adar that comes immediately after the month of Shvat. The Yibardo continues and says, "Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel Savor." Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel says, "B'chol shana v'shana, ma'chol shana v'shana, Adar hasamach le Nisan." No, he says we should observe the holiday of Parim every year, b'chol shana in Adar hasamach le Nisan, in the Adar that is closest to the month of Nisan, and that is Adar Bet. Afkan. We should observe Purim in the month of Adar that is closest to the month of Nisan. The opinion of Rabbi Eliezer ben Yossi, which was the first one, makes sense. That we should always observe Purim in Adar Aleph because one month of Adar always happens. The first month of Adar always happens. We wouldn't want to pass over the mitzvah. We wouldn't want to give up the opportunity to do a mitzvah. So we should observe it in the first Adar. El Shimon But what is the reason to go according to the second opinion that we should skip a month of Adar? That we should have a month of Adar go by without us observing Purim and only then observe Purim in Adar Bet? What is the reason to understand this explanation? The answer is given that it is better when we are able to put one geula next to another geula. What does that mean? That both the holidays of Purim and Pesach are holidays of geula. They are holidays of Redemption. And if we are able to connect one redemption to another redemption, that is better. That we want to put geula, samoch So we want Parim to go next to Pesach. It seems to be that there is a connection that is understood to exist in the commentators based on the Gemara. That there, there seems to be this understanding that there is an inherent connection between Parim and pisach. To strengthen this, in the Megillah itself, it tells us about another very apparent connection between Purim and Pesach, and that is that the story of Purim actually happens on Pesach. What does that mean? <laughs> In the first month, that is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of Virosh, the poor was cast, the lottery of Haman was drawn. And it was cast before Haman concerning every day and every month of the 12th month, and that is the month of Adar. So Haman makes this lottery and he pulls out that the plan that he wants to carry out to the Jewish people will take place in the month of Adar. When did this happen? It happened on the 13th day of Nisan so when were the letters sent out to all of the nations of aḥashverosh they were sent out on the 13th day of Nisan, which means that when Mordecai heard the news and then went to Esther, Esther began her Tanis, began the fast on the 15th of Nisan, which is the first day of Pesach. That this entire story is happening on Pesach. So it seems to be that it is clear that there is a connection both in the text itself that Purim happened on Pesach and in the broader sense in the text of the Gemara and the Mefarshim, that there is a connection between Purim and Pesach. And what I want to explore tonight is what is that connection? That is this just, okay, there are two holidays. They're either the two closest holidays. They're the two bookend holidays of the year. So we connect them one to another. What's a connection between holidays? Or is there something deeper here? And I believe that in order to understand the deeper significance between Purim, the connection between Purim and Pesach, we have to look at two totally separate episodes that occur. One that is in relation to Purim and one that is in relation to Pesach. The first is in a Pasuk that is found at the very end of the Megillat Esther. It says, "Kimu veKiblu HaYehudim Alehem veAlzaram veAl Kol Hanalvim Alehem veLo Yaavor Lihyot Osem Et Shnei Hayamim HaElah Kechtava veChizmanam BeChol Shana veShana." The Jews undertook and irrevocably obligated themselves and their descendants and all who might join them to observe these two days in the manner prescribed and at the proper time each year. Mordechai and Esther wrote down what had happened and they decreed that every year the Jewish people should observe a holiday to celebrate the miracle that happened to them in Shushan. And it says in this Pasuk, famously, Kimu ha-yehudim aleihem. The Jewish people accepted this holiday upon themselves. The Gemara Masachat Shabbos comments based on this Pasuk, V'yit hahar. The Gemara here is not discussing specifically our Pasuk in the Megillah. It quotes our Pasuk at the end. But what it begins discussing is Matan Torah. And it says, hahar," That we typically understand this Pasuk that is describing by Matan Torah, that B'nai Israel, we're standing at the base of the mountain. Amar aviyadimi barchama We can reread this pasuk and we can understand that it was not that Bnei Yisrael were standing around the base of Har Sinai. Rather, it was that Bnei Yisrael actually were underneath the Har. That Hashem picked up Har Sinai above them and (laughs) Kafa alayim Har Kigigis. Hashem held the mountain above them like a barrel and said to Bnei Mutav. If you choose to accept the Torah, great, fantastic. The Imlav, and Imnat, and if not, Sham here will be your burial place. Well, this is scary. This is what happened at Matan Torah, that Hashem threatened us, Hashem picked up the mountain and said, If you accept my Torah, fantastic. We'll all move on. I'll put the mountain down. It will all be great. And if not, Sham tehekh Furaschan, This will be your burial place. This will be the end of you, Ahmizel. So, would you like the Torah? And it's like, uh, of course, I would like the Torah. Thank you so much. I'd rather not die here under the mountain. So that is the situation that is presented to us in the Gemara. Amar so Rabbi Achabar So Rabbi comes along and says, and says, muda Rabbi This is true. This is what happened amaraba Pihin, hador kiblu habimeh Akashvirosh. however lest we should think that this is how we accepted the torah that this is our relationship to the torah in the door of achshvirush at the time of the perm story dirtiv kimu vekiblu Kimu Masha Kiblu In the days of Akashvarosh, Ach- in the generation of Jewish people that lived during the Param story, there was a reacceptance of the Torah. Lest that you think we only accepted the Torah by force, you should say no. During the time of Akashvarosh, Kimu Masha Kiblu they reaccepted upon themselves what they had accepted previously. So this sheds light on Purim in a new way. The Purim is not just the holiday of Hester Panim that we learn about the miracles that Hashem does for us even in a hidden way. It is not just the holiday of miracles that we see performed via Esther and Mordechai and the great fantastic Purim story. But rather, this shines light on Purim as also a holiday of our reacceptance of the Torah. This gives another side to the Megillah, another side to the holiday of Purim in which we celebrate our reacceptance of Torah, that we developed a new connection with the Torah, that previously we had accepted the Torah by force. There was some sort of feeling that we were obligated to accept the Torah. And then in the time of Purim, we accepted it willingly. We reaccepted upon ourselves what we had accepted by force previously. So this shines a new light on Purim. I want to put that aside for a minute. We have this new aspect of Parim, which is the Kimu Masha Kiblu Kvar, the Kimu VeKiblu aspect of Parim, where we have reaccepted the Torah. But now I want to put that to the side, and I want to discuss one aspect of Pesach. In Shemot Parak Yedbet, we are introduced to the Carbon Pesach. Hashem Moshe Zo Chukat HaPesach. Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron, "These are the laws of the Carbon Pesach." Kol Beni Char Lo any ben who I'm not going to translate that in the moment, but it would seem to mean some sort of stranger, ben someone who we are not familiar with, lo yuchalbo, should not eat from it. Hashem v'chol eved ish meknak kasef umelta uto az yuchalbo. We then go through all these different rules of the carbon pesach that you have to you have to buy into it from before. It has to be for a pre-designated group of people. Anyone who just happens upon your home that night cannot eat from it. But, but you should eat it in one house. You shouldn't take it out from the house. You shouldn't break any of the bones. Everyone in Am Yisrael should participate. And a ger, as long as he has been circumcised can participate in the Karban Pesach as well. Anyone who is uncircumcised may not eat. From the Karbam Pesach, but anyone who has been circumcised and is a member of Amisrael should eat from the Karban Pesach. Rashi comments here, though, on that first pasuk of Vichol ben y- beni lo Rashi explains here shenistak ru maasav la'aviv ve'echad ha'goy ve'echad Yisrael mushmad mashma. What is this? Who is this Ben Nechar? Rashi explains here and says, one whose actions have estranged him from Hashem, that it is someone who is a Mishumad, someone who has turned away from Hashem, someone who has gone against Hashem, that person may not eat from the Karban Pesach. So we have two questions here. The first question is, why do we start off the halachot of the Karban Pesach with who cannot eat from it? And second of all, this is a very strange halacha. This halacha is is dissimilar to any other karban. That a mishumad, someone who has turned against Hashem in theology and in action, someone who has sinned against Hashem, is always allowed to be counted as a full-fledged member of Am Yisrael. We do not distinguish against them when it comes to the halachot of eating from Kachim, when it comes to eating from Karbanos. So this seems quite strange. And this is not just a comment of Rashi. This is brought down by the Rambam in his halachic works, that this is halachot, that someone who is a Mishumad, someone who has turned against Hashem, may not eat from the Karban Pesach. And why is that? The Sefer HaChinuch comments here. The Sefer HaChinuch being a work that was written from a father to his son gives us possible explanations in Tamei HaMitzvot, reasons behind the mitzvot. So the Sefer HaChinuch explains here. (laughs) Mishar shei mitzvah zi. Kimo shekatov b'shakato l'zachar nisei mitzrayim, sorry. Val ken raoi she lo yuchal this carbon is meant to remind us of the nisim that happened in Mitzrayim, and therefore it is not shayach, it's not appropriate that someone who is a mumar, someone who is a meshumad, someone who has gone against Hashem, should eat from the karbon pisach the Kafar He says, What is the carbon Pesach? The carbon Pesach is not just any old carbon. Rather, the carbon Pesach is a symbol of our Brit with Hashem, of our covenant that we created with Hashem, it is reminding us of the Nisim in Mitzrayim, in which Hashem initiated us into this covenant with him. Yetziah Mitzrayim, we know it was the beginning of our covenant with Hashem, in which Hashem brought us Tach HaKamthei in which he brought us into his care and he made us into his nation. So the Sefer HaKinuch says it's just not appropriate that someone who has denied God, someone who has gone against Hashem, should be eating from this Karban Pesach. And therefore, even though when it comes to all other karbanot we say that someone who is a mishumad, someone who is a mumar, is still considered completely to be a Jewish person and therefore can eat from kachim. When it comes to the karban Pesach, this is a specific situation in which they cannot be included. That this karban is representative of our relationship with Hashem, and they have purposely opted out of their connection to Hashem. So now we have these two... Topics that we discussed. We have the first, which is Kimu Masha Kiblu Kfar. The B'nai Israel took Perim as an opportunity to re-accept the Torah. We have another seemingly completely disconnected topic. Which that is, which is that when it comes to the Karban Pesach, someone who is a Ben Nechar, someone who has denied God, someone who is a Meshumad, cannot eat from the Karban Pesach. And what in the world do these two things have to do with each other? You're probably thinking, Emma, what happened? Did you fall asleep when you were writing your shear? These things have nothing to do with each other. But what I would like to say is if we look at one more piece of the Megillah, we can try to understand what the connection between these two things are and ultimately what the connection between Purim and Pesach in general is. One of the most famous pieces of the Megillah is the pep talk from Mordechai to Esther. What am I talking about? After Mordechai finds out about the evil decree of Haman, Mordechai takes off his regular clothing. He dons sackcloth, clothes of mourning. He puts ashes on his head and he sits in the courtyard of the king. Esther gets wind of what is happening. What is her crazy cousin doing now? Why is he mourning in the Chatzer Hamalach? And Esther sends out... um, Messengers to go communicate with Mordecai and Mordecai tells Esther what is happening and he says, Esther, you need to go to Achashverosh. And Esther responds. She says, I have not been called into the king for 30 days. I cannot go in on my own. I will be killed. Not a question. And Mordecai sends back the messenger with this pep talk. Mordecai says, return this message to Esther. Do not imagine that you will escape from this, Esther. That when all the Jews are being cleared out, do not think that you are going to survive. Because if you are quiet at this time, Salvation will come to the Jewish people from a different place. But you and your father's house, you will be lost. Who knows if for this specific situation you were brought into the king's palace? And it is at this point that we see a change in the nature of Esther. That previously, and we're going to, just for the sake of time, we are not going to read these psukim inside. But prior to this episode, Esther is a completely passive character. Every language that is used in regard to Esther is one of complete passivity. Vatila kach Esther, Esther is brought here, and Esther didn't tell. Vlota Esther at Moladita, she doesn't tell. Um, her nationality, because Mordecai told her not to. Everything is just Esther being schlepped around here to there, here to there, doing what Mordecai tells her, without any seemingly, uh, without seemingly any input from Esther herself. She is a completely passive character. And then we have this episode, this pep talk episode, and following this immediately in in the next pasuk, Esther commands Mordechai and says, "Lech koha yehudim. gather together all of the yehudim." And we know that that then ultimately leads to the salvation of the Jewish people, that it is at this point that Esther completely switches her nature. She goes from passive to active. She is no longer sitting back, vatila Esther and Esther being taken here to there. Rather, she is the one commanding, "Lech Koha Yehudim. She goes to the king. She invites the king to the, to her Mishnah. She invites Haman to her Mishnah. She has Haman brought to her. Everything that Esther does from now on is on her own accord. She is acting in a completely different way from what she was in the beginning of the Megillah. And the question is, what changed here? Yes, we all say this is a beautifully crafted pep talk by Mordechai, but what about it really affected Esther? And I would like to answer this question with an answer by Rav Lichtenstein that I believe can connect everything that we have discussed until this point. Rav Lichtenstein says, what a biting accusation. Mordechai is accusing Esther of not caring about the Jewish people. It would seem that he should have told her, you don't want to do anything? Then don't. You are cowardly and lacking in any initiative. You haven't been called to the king in 30 days. So what? This would have put Esther in a more positive light. It is terrible that you are not prepared to risk yourself, even at the expense of the entire nation, but still, it is a result of your inherent weakness. Had Mordecai simply accused Esther of being weak, that would have been one thing. It would have been hard to take on Esther's part, but it would have been understandable if that's what Mordecai was going to say. However, Mordecai doesn't attribute her response to weakness. He pushes his assaults all the way, appealing to the deepest recesses of the Jewish soul. He accuses Esther of refusing to go to the king, not because she lacks courage, not out of weakness, but rather as a calculated choice. Let the entire Jewish nation be destroyed. Let them all perish, young and old, men and women. I, You will remain secure in the Jewish palace. Mordecai says, Esther, there is something going on here. And then he continues and he says, You know what, Esther, if you think that, you think that all of the Jewish people is going to be wiped out and you're going to remain, you're wrong. That's not going to happen. He says, no, Esther. He says, Salvation will come to the Jewish people. You know who will be lost? It will be you. He appeals directly to Esther and he says, What's going to happen to the Jewish people is going to happen to the Jewish people. Hashem is going to save us. But you know who has a choice to make here? You, Esther. You can be apathetic. You can sit back and do nothing. Hashem is going to conduct this story as he is going to, regardless of your actions. But you have a choice here. You are the one who can make a choice to opt in, to take action, to save the Jewish people and to save yourself. If you don't step up here, everyone else will be saved. Hashem is going to come through for us. But your family is going to be lost. You are going to be lost. Esther, it's up to you. What Rav Lichtenstein says here is that Mordechai appeals to Esther and says, Esther, take action. Do not be apathetic. He says, what you are not considering here is the fate of the Jewish people. The Jewish people, Hashem will deal with us. Hashem will take care of us. You need to think about you. What is your role going to be? Jewish history is going to continue. Are you going to play a part in it? And I think that this message of Rav Lichtenstein, what Revlichtenstein says that Mordechai gave over to Esther, is something that can relate to everything we spoke about here tonight. With Parim, Kimu vekiblu Hayehudim, Kimu kiblu Far, it is possible to look at Torah to say we're obligated. That's what we have to do. We have to keep Torah mitzvos. But the message of Purim is that this was not just a passive holiday. This was not a passive geula. Hashem did not just come along and save us without our doing anything. Rather, this is the holiday of Kimu V'Kiblu. That we stood up and we took action. Esther says, We fasted and we fought back. We stood up and we took part in the geulah. The holiday of Parim is not like the holiday of Sukkot. This is not a holiday in which we celebrate something that Hashem did for us. Rather, we celebrate something that we participated in. We celebrate the accomplishment that we work towards. That obviously this was all in the hands of Hashem, but we didn't sit back and relax. We got up. We participated. We took an active role. And what does this have to do with the Karbam? Pesach? The Karban Pesach as well, we see, as the Sefer Achinoch told us, that it would be inappropriate for someone who has denied Hashem to take place, in to take part in eating from the Karban Pesach. Why is that? Because the Geulah from Mitzrayim was one as well that we participated in. We had to play an active role. Hashem said, you are on the lowest level of tuma. I want to save you Amisrael, but you need to step up. You need to take part in this ge'ulah. You need to go out. You need to take that karbam Pesach. You need to shech the karbam Pesach. You need to put the blood on the doorpost. You have to prepare yourselves. You have to step up. You have to take part in this ge'ulah. What we're celebrating on both Purim and Pesach is the opportunity that we have as a Jewish people to step up and be part of our ge'ulah. That Purim and Pesach are both similar in that they are the Yemei Nisim of the Jewish people. But these are not just Nisim that we passively accepted, that happened to us. These are Nisim that we participated in. And the message of connecting Purim and Pesach is saying, what are we going to do? Are you going to step up? Are you going to participate? What is your role going to be? Purim and Pesach are going to come this year. Whether you think about it or not, Purim will come. You'll go to the Megillah. You'll give Mishloach You'll you'll give Matano Lavyonim. You'll have your Suda. But are you going to make Purim something greater than that? Pesach's going to happen. Somehow, it always comes together. The cleaning and the cooking and the cleaning and the cooking and the Sedarim and the days of Pesach. It happens. It's going to happen again this year. But what is your role going to be? Are you going to just let it pass you by? Or are you going to get up? Are you going to take an active role in what your spiritual experience of Purim and Pesach this year are going to be like? It says in the Gemara that 30 days, that Shloshim Yom Kudim HaChag is when you should begin preparing for the next holiday. The message that we can learn this Purim is the one of Mordechai to Esther. What are you going to do? Are you going to stand up? Are you going to opt in? Are you going to take that active role? And we begin that preparation on Purim and we prepare ourselves. We think about our, how are we going to opt in? What is our role going to be? What are we going to do this year? And we take that with us. We hopefully we utilize it starting out on Purim and it carries us all the way through Pesach. And this year, may we choose to opt in. May we take that active role and may we ultimately celebrate another Geulah that we opted into. Thank you so much for joining tonight. Next up will be Mrs. Khani Friedman.
1: Good evening, everybody. So let's look at a brief historical overview to provide a working knowledge of the major events which follow that time period and precede and surround the story of Purah. Let's go way back. The Jewish people led by Yahushua entered the land of Israel around the year 1272 BCE. After settling and developing the land and establishing both a monarchy and a very sophisticated legal and judicial system, the building of the first Beit HaMikdash, the first temple, was begun around the year 832 BCE. It was started by King David and completed three years later by his son, King Solomon. At the first Beit HaMikdash, Stood for 410 years, and during that time, a vibrant Jewish community flourished in Israel, with Jerusalem and the Beit HaMikdash as its spiritual, cultural, and political center. I want to share my screen for a moment because I want to give you a map to talk about the next the next portion. Okay, this is a little more of an ancient map. Um, but in the Near Eastern world, which is what we're showing here, that surrounded Israel, you had empires in Egypt, in Assyria, which is Ashur and Tanakh, and Babylonia, over here, which vied for power and for prestige. Eretz Yisrael is over here with Jerusalem at its center. After the allied forces of Egypt and Assyria, failed in their attempt to conquer Babylonia, the Babylonians, with Nebuchadnezzar as their king, became the preeminent regional power. They controlled the trade routes, and you can see there are a lot of trade routes, look at the water passages. They controlled those trade routes from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean. They amassed enormous wealth, and became the overlords of numerous cities and peoples. It was this Babylonian superpower headed by Nebuchadnezzar, which employed its army to conquer Jerusalem and destroy the base Hamikdash on the ninth of Av, which we commemorate as Tishabav. The destruction of Jerusalem began the period of Jewish history known as the Babylonian exile the Jews who survived the Babylonian onslaught or taken in humiliation to Babylonia or Babylon, Bevel. there with time they were able to build a vibrant Jewish community and were to a great degree afforded the ability to conduct their religious and communal lives with a good deal of social independence. Some 50 years after the beginning of the Babylonian exile, King Darius I, we call him Daryavish, of Medea, and King Cyrus Koresh of Persia. So here you have Medea, and here you have Persia, embarked on a campaign which sought to subdue much of the Near and Middle East, including Babylonia. Shortly after Babylonia fell, Koresh became the king of the entire Persian Median Empire, and as such, inherited the Jews of Babylonia as his subjects. Um, that particular empire and those kings, Koresh, and his successor Ahasuerus, would provide the stage, setting, and landscape upon which the story of Purim takes place. At this point, I'm going to stop this share. Okay. To celebrate the victory of this big Persian Medean takeover, Akash threw a colossal party in classic Sultanate style. He used the holy vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had looted from the base of Mikdash in Jerusalem. Even more tragic than the party itself was the fact that the Jews in the capital city of Shushan, which is modern-day Susa in Iran, also participated in Ahasuerus' celebration over the strong objections of their religious leadership. The Talmud states that it was this sin that caused the subsequent nearly fatal threat to the Jewish people. Now, a few years after the events of Purim, King Darius II, the son of Esther and Ahasuerus, allowed the Jewish people to return to Israel and rebuild the Beis Hamikdash. The Beis Hamikdash was rebuilt exactly 70 years after its destruction, as predicted by Yirmi Yahu. Now there's some very interesting math surrounding the initial prophecies of Yermiyahu, who was the Navi at the time, when the Jews were exiled from Israel by Babel. Yermi the prophet had warned the Jewish people that there would be a destruction and that there would be an exile. And the Jews now hung on his prophecies. The prophecies referenced 70 years, that time period, more than once. One of the 70 year time periods was related to destruction But there was also a 70-year time period related to a prediction of hope that the Jews would return to Israel and rebuild the Beis HaMikdash and thus rebuild their homeland. Yermiyahu even put a date on the return. He declared that the Beis HaMikdash would be rebuilt 70 years after its destruction. And so I'm going to share my screen once more. And, um... we're going to look at the prophecies that were just mentioned. One prophecy of Yirmi Yahu's goes in Perak Hafei, it says, And this entire country will be destroyed. It will be desolate. Shivim and this nation will um be subservient to the King of Babel for seventy years. Bahaya, the shivim Shana, and it will be when seventy years are fulfilled, are complete. Efkod al Melach Babel No Um Hashem. Hashem says, I'll remember what the King of Babel did, and I'll remember what you did. Um As I'll remember the sin. Va'al Eretz Kastim—that's another name for the nation of Babel, the land of bubble, V'samti also, and I will put that country l'shimamos olam to complete worldly desolation. In Parakov Tesh, says, "Ki Hashem," and this is what Hashem says: "Ki Lafim los lebavel." When we will complete for Babel 70 years, then I will remember you. And I will fulfill my good word to return you to this place. And then Daniel, a prophet of the times as well, says, Ani Daniel, I am Daniel. I've been checking out in the Svarim, in the holy works. Mispar Hashanim Asher Hayadavar Hashem El I've been checking out the number of years that Hashem spoke about Ti the Prophet. And when I've been checking out that math, so to speak. Lamalos we will complete the destruction of Yerushalayim of Jerusalem to be a completion of seventy years. So we'll stop that. I always have a problem stopping this. Okay. So now what? There was much confusion as to the exact period of the 70 years. First of all, is there more than one 70-year calculation from the historical standpoint? And from which, which event does that calculation start? So we're going to share one more time. Bear with me. And I created a chart for you. And what you have here is four color-coded possibilities. There are four key events to consider for the start of this 70-year count. One would be what we have in pink. And that is the rise of Nebuchadnezzar to the throne in 3319, which is the Jewish calendar. And by the way, these calendar dates are taken from the Torah anthology, the Mayam Loeis. Calendar dates at this period of time are very, very complex. Um, there's a lot of confusion in the secular world about years and dates during this time period. So I'm going to stick with what the Mayam Loes uses. And we'll, it really almost doesn't matter what the exact year is. We're worried about the 70-year difference. So if we look at the pink, we would be counting from the time that Nebuchadnezzar assumes the Babylonian throne. And he makes the Judean king his vassal. So that could be one event to consider. The second event would be the one in yellow, which is when Yermiyahu predicts the destruction of the temple. It hasn't occurred yet, but he's telling the people, watch out, this temple is going to be destroyed. The third calculation could be the exile of Yechanah, and the other Gedolah Yisrael in 3327. That is when literally the Jews are exiled to um, Bavel. And then the fourth possibility in green is starting from the destruction of the first temple itself, the destruction. Now you'll say, who cares? Why do we put so much weight on the 70 year prophecy? Of course, we just mentioned that the Jews cared because they wanted to know when will this exile be over and when will they be able to be returned to their homeland. But besides the Jewish concern, the Gentile nations feared the Jewish God and they were therefore concerned too. Though the Jews were defeated, these Gentile kings were superstitious of of repercussions by the Jewish God against them. So now let's talk about these four ideas for the 70 years in more detail. Let's look at the pink. Nebuchadnezzar assumes the Babylonian throne, we said, in 3319 or 442. After Nebuchadnezzar dies, Belshazzar becomes the king of Babylon, And let's just go down to the next pink area. And when Belshazzar becomes the king of Babylon in 372 BCE, His advisors calculate that 70 years had passed since Nebuchadnezzar had become king. And they go to Belshazzar and they say, hey, we're free. We don't have to worry about the Jewish God. The 70 years has passed. Nothing's happened. We're good to be in charge. And so Belshazzar makes a tremendous feast. And in defiance, just to show that he's going to stick it to the Jewish people. He used the clay Kodesh vessels of the Beis HaMikdash. And it was at this banquet that you have the famous handwriting on the wall in for Dunil, And there's all kinds of interpretation of that. Belshazzar becomes frightened. His advisors become frightened. And Belshazzar ends up being assassinated that night by his servant for a variety of reasons. That's not the scope of this particular class. Belshazzar's daughter was Vashti. Darius Daryavish, this is Daryavish I, then attacked Bubble because once Belshazzar had died, and first of all, we said that the Persians and the Medeans had designs to get the Babylonian Empire, he attacked Bubble and he was victorious. He represented the Persian and Medean Empire. So if we look at that pink um, gradation there, we see that Babel's empire had in fact lasted 70 years. So in a sense, Yermiyahu's first prophecy had been fulfilled, that the Jewish people would be subservient to the Babylonian king for 70 years. And now it's a new king and a new day. The Babylonian empire had come to an end. A new power dominated the world scene, this Persian Medean empire. Now took Vashti to Persia, she was 12 years old at the time, and she married Achashveirosh, his grandson, when she was about 18, six years later. Now what about that second prophecy of hope? Now let's look at the yellows. The king after Daryavish was Koresh, Cyrus. His advisors saw that the year 370 BCE was 70 years since Yirmiyahu had predicted the Khorban, the destruction in 440 BCE so they're focusing on this date in yellow and they thought that they would escape the divine wrath here they you know um, had some thought about the process if they did something good for the jews koresh becomes king right after Bal Shatzar dies after Nebuchadnezzar is long gone And he says, you know, maybe if I do something good for the Jews, their God will be nice to me. And so Koresh actually orders the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash. Um, This is in 370 BCE. And actually, 40,000 Jews went back to Israel to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash. While 600,000 stayed in Babel because Babel was still so comfortable for them. Now, Koresh dies before much work could be done. And enemies in Israel pressured him to halt the construction. And that ban was in effect during Ahasuerus' reign as well. So if we look at the yellow, we see that in fact, there is a period of 70 years from the time that Yirmiyahu predicts the destruction of the temple and from the time that Koresh says the temple can be reconstructed. That is a 70-year time period, which is auspicious. It's not just a coincidence, um, according to the Chachamun. But Koresh does die. The construction is halted and Ahasuerus becomes the king and he keeps that halt of the construction in place. Akashverrosh succeeds Koresh and um, some say that he was even the son of Koresh, and he had married Daryavish the first daughter. So he was a grandson of Daryavish the I. Um, no, Koreish had married Daryavish's daughter, so therefore Ahashveosh is the grandson, right? Ahashveosh married Vashti, who was Belshazzar's daughter. Now if we look at the blue lines of um, dates. We have a new theory in place. Ahasuerus' advisors told Ahasuerus that Koresh actually erred in his calculation. They said, Yirmi Yahuwah said the Jews would return after 70 years. So the count should have really been from the exile of Yechania in 434, 434 BCE, that blue date, Um, that we have lined out over there. You can only return to some place if you've left the place. That was their philosophy. And so since Yechania and the Judeans finally left Judea and were exiled to Babel, the only way to count 70 years would be from that time. And if you do, you end up with the 366 BCE, because you're allowed to take the year it started and the year it ended, you end up with your 70 years. And so, they said to Achashverosh, "See here, the Jews have not been fully redeemed, and seventy years have passed, and therefore Yirmiyahu's prophecy of them returning to the land of Israel is not going to happen." Pharaoh takes this as a sign that Hashem has abandoned his people, and he therefore makes his big mishtap at the start of the Megillah. He felt that his empire was no longer in any danger from the Jewish God. The story of the Megillah takes place. Esther marries Ahasuerus, and they have a son, Daryavesh II. The miracle of Purim occurs, and this happens during the exile of Babel, right before the real rebuilding of the second Temple. HaMekdash. Ahasuerus dies. He's succeeded by Daryavash II, the son of Esther. Some say Daryavish was only six years old, but had a brilliant mind and was a very precocious child. He knew his mother was Jewish. And so technically he was Jewish too. The great prophet Daniel realized that this was going to be the true fulfillment of Yirmiyahu's prophecy. And in fact, it was. So if we look at the green lines at this point, Daniel prayed to God, that Daryavish would be the one to fulfill that final prophecy of hope. And by the way, Achashverosh's astrologer said that a Jew would take his throne away from him. And that's why he didn't really particularly like the Jews. And the truth is, a Jew did take his throne away from him. So in 353, after Achashverosh dies, and the II um, is the king, right? In 353, He orders the rebuilding of the base Hamikdash and the Jews are allowed to go back to Israel and rebuild their land. And in fact, they do so. That is exactly 70 years since the real destruction of the first temple. So the historical background of Purim starts with the Babylonian exile, which occurs before, after and during the Purim base Hamikdash, the first one. It includes the fight for the Babylonian Empire and its transfer of power to the Persian Median Empire. The story of the Megillah describes Jewish life in Shushan Persia and the lesson that the Jewish people learned after being threatened by Haman, a descendant of Amalek, and their realization that Hashem is their God and he is always their ultimate savior. This then leads in our history to the rebuilding of the second, based on Mekdash and Eretisral, and we call that then the era of the second Commonwealth. And that is a whole new story in Jewish history. So, with that, I'm technically finished. I, I think what we've developed here is where this story took place, first of all in the context of the map, you have a vision of that. How there were different empires vying for power, starting with Bavel, and then going through to Persia and Medea, and the persian Median Empire, which was combined. Achashverosh and the whole story. The concept of the non-Jewish um, rulers being concerned about how Hashem was going to react to the fact that his people were exiled, how they would react to the prophecies of Yirmi at the time, who actually prophesied that the Jewish people would um, be subservient to Babel for 70 years, but also after 70 years would be returned to their homeland and they would rebuild their second Beis Hamikdash and have a whole renewed life of splendor during that time. And Purim sits smack in the middle of all of that. So I'm done. Okay.
0: Thank you so much, Hani. Okay. And with that, I'm going to introduce Ms. Talia Molotsky. Thank you, Talia.
2: Hello. Hi everyone. Okay. I just got on about six or seven seconds ago, so I did not have the pleasure to hear from everybody else already, um, but I will begin. Um, do I have, am I, am I able to now send a source sheet for anyone who wants to follow along?
0: Um, I believe so. Let me make sure that you can chat. Yeah, you should be able to. Just
2: give me one second, everyone. You're reminding me that I completely
0: forgot to share my source sheet. Wow. Okay.
2: (laughs) Okay. You do not need this to be able to follow today. This is, I think we have labeled this one as the textual shear, um, text-based shear, which is fine. But I'd like to have everybody to have access to the sources if they would like. All right. Okay. Hopefully everybody got that. Amazing. Okay. So, hello everyone. Um, good evening. It's so exciting to be talking um, for Neely in general. Um, I always love all the work that Neely does, and thank you especially to Emma. Um, and in particular, I would say for Purim, which happens to be my favorite day of the year, it's my favorite Jewish holiday. Um, I have a lot of really positive, wonderful memories from growing up in Chicago um, of things we did in our community. Um, and in general, it's just a, a wonderful holiday that I'll get into a little bit during this talk. So, what I want to talk about is um, today. Um, I, we didn't publish the, the title of it, but what I wrote about here is um, I took the, the title from the new movie Encanto. Um, they said, like, we don't talk about Bruno. There's basically, this does not ruin the story for anybody who hasn't seen it. Um, but for anyone who has seen it, there's one figure, there's one family member in this story who kind of, no one talks about him. Like he's just kind of this outcast. No one really knows what happened to him, whatever it is. And throughout the story, you learn a little bit more nuance about this character, so again, not going to give anything away there. But that's why I called this here. Instead of we don't talk about Bruno, I said we don't talk about you. No, no, no. And I said I wanted to like take a little bit of a nuanced look at a particular villain in the Magilla. What I think is so cool and exciting about the Perm story is, I don't know what a better way to describe it would be than like fantastical. Um, in a lot of other stories, we have a lot of very nuanced characters, people that aren't good, that aren't bad. They're kind of gray. In the story of the Megillah, we really have a lot of people that are extreme heroes. We have Mordecai, we have Esther, um, we have, you know all the different people um, of the Neh that rallied together in Davin, you know, and turn around their own destiny. And we have extreme villains. We certainly have Bigtan and Teresh that try to kill the king. We have Haman. We have, you could say, arguably Vashti and Achashverosh that Hazal portray in very negative, nuanced, unusual ways. Um, But overall, we have kind of this sense of extreme goods and extreme bads. And the reason I wanted to look today in particular um, at the role of Haman um, in the Purim story is because I think there's such a larger narrative and so much nuance to um, Haman. And even if we don't leave today saying, oh, Haman's great, that's not the goal of this. Haman is still a Russia and we still do you know, spend our time on you know, while we're reading the Megillah trying to wipe out Haman's name and think about his story trying to destroy the Jewish people. Um, I think it's a good lesson that even the most evil of people sometimes have nuance. Um, I kind of think of like the musical Wicked for anyone who's seen it, right? Like you don't necessarily leave and say that like Alphaba is not Wicked, but it just gives you such a wider, broader, richer understanding of who the main character, the protagonist is. So with that, let's kind of jump in a little bit. And I'm gonna preface it with one more thing, which is that we're not actually learning the text of the Megillah all that much. We're learning a lot of things that kind of lead themselves toward who Haman was as a person and who he represented so let's get started oh no i have one more caveat i'm sorry (laughs) we really will learn don't worry my last caveat is if you are looking at the source sheet i'll have you follow along with me the sources are numbered if you see oh my goodness this is very long for half an hour don't worry i am very good at staying right on time and i learned from a teacher of mine um rebbe jg schachter um who teaches at yeshiva university um when he one time gave me a 15 page source sheet for a 15 minute talk and i kind of was in shock and then he said the torah speaks for itself he said it's not my torah It's the Torah and it speaks for itself. And I know you're going to be blown away by this Torah. And I want to give it to you later that if we don't get through everything that you can see it. So I'm going to use the same thing. This is not Talia's Torah tonight. I'm just hopefully maybe revealing, helping, exploring a nugget of the Torah. um, And I'm confident that if we don't get to finish, if you're interested in learning more, I wanted to provide everything here. So that's why it's a little bit long. So let's jump in. Our first sheet, this is on page one, our first source is just the text of the Megillah itself. Um, We have in Perak Aleph and Perak Bet, right? There's 10 prakin in in the story of Megillah. Um, We have a party, Achashverosh is throwing a party. We set the scene. Um, We understand that the Jewish people are in an unusual place. We know that Vashti does not agree to come to Achashverosh's party, which he's celebrating thinking that he's really overruled the Jewish people. They're not returning from exile. He throws out Vashti, he's upset. He starts to find Esther. Things are moving really quickly. And again, this story, like I said, is like fantastical, right? Like you have just these wild parties and you have, we're in Galut. And then all of a sudden we're getting this salvation. It's it's a crazy, amazing story in these 10 short pracking. So at the opening of chapter three, right? The third parrot here, um, we're introduced to the character of Haman. Not going to read every single piece of it, but I bolded a few different pieces when we're introduced to a new character in Tanakh any time, we're usually given something about their lineage. Maybe we're given what tribe they came from. Maybe we're told something about them. And that's so here with Haman. Um, so what did we learn about him? That uh promoted Haman, um, who was Ben-Hamedata, so we know who his, who his father was, and Ha-Agagi, that he's an Agagite. All right? So we know that he's from... Somehow, some kind of descending line from Agag. So many of us know the story of Agag. We're going to go back to, back to this story shortly. But again, we've set the scene now for who he is and where he's coming from. If we fast forward a little bit more, what do we learn about him right away? This is not a very pleasant fellow that's very go with the flow. He wants everyone to bow down to him. And Mordecai is not doing so at the end of Pasuk Bet. Mordecai would not agree. He would not bow down. And he would not, you know, kowtow to Haman's requests. So we already have set the scene right now because this makes Haman very upset. And we see at the end of, if we go to uh, Pasuket, So he's filled with this like anger, this upset, this anger, this resentment toward Mordechai. So what has it become? Vaiva is kind of from the word like b to take something that has value and to degrade it, right? To make it like a B-Zion, something that's like kind of worthless. So all of a sudden, in his mind, there's not only this schema, this anger for Mordechai, right? For this one individual Jewish person, but all of a sudden it's something much bigger. He decides it's not just enough to really get revenge or be upset with Mordechai. Um, it really has to be something much larger than that. And that's really where this plan forms, Haman's plan um, where he doesn't want to just kill Mordecai or get upset with Mordecai, He wants to punish all the Jewish people on his behalf. And then if we skip a little bit more, and this is toward the end of Source 1, which already goes on to the next page, on this last pasuk uh, here, This here is something a little bit more unusual. Typically, we character to a figure in the Torah, and we're given their lineage. We don't necessarily refer to them every single time with their connection. And we see here again, Agagi this appears again. And I definitely think that this is very, very relevant. Um, And this is something that we're kind of going to go through a little bit more. Right now, we just see this character that we're not really so familiar with Haman. It seems like something happened to him that kind of hurt his pride, but he turned it into this huge, gigantic, like entire annihilation of an entire people in a very short span of time. And this to me is so interesting because the story here, I think, is not just the story of Haman, one evil person that wants to do bad unto the Jewish people. The story goes way, way, way back. And many of you may be familiar with this or may not be, but I hope that also through tonight's learning, um, even if you kind of are familiar with this concept of what I'm going to call Masa Avot Siman the idea or Masa Avot Siman Labanim, that we have something that will happen earlier in the Torah, and it kind of sets a blueprint or something that's going to continue on through the generations. We see this so many times and in so many different places, but I think this individual kind of line of, uh, of pattern in history is really special. So we see that this story does not start with Haman because again, he's being connected to Haman Ha'agagi. So I wanna actually go back even a little bit further than Agag because we know that, um, that Agag descends all the way back from Amalek. And we know one more thing that Amalek descends from who? descends from Aesav. So I want to look at source 2 right here. It's showing you right here that right after the story of um, Yaakov and Esau, when it goes on to talk about Amalek, about Aesav's, um lineage afterward, we get it right here in the text over here. In and Vav, source 2, batimah etab hilagish Alifaz bin Aesav, the alifaz at Amalek, Ela b'nei Ada isha When It's going through all the lineage of Aesav, different wives and who they have. This is right here, drawing a connection saying Amalek is Aesav. Why does that become relevant? We know probably in our heads, right, from our from our education, we know Amalek is not a great people and there are enemies, and we know that we have Parshat zafar uh, which tells us to wipe out Amalek. But where's that connection, right? How do we get from Esav to Amalek to suddenly them being, you know, these crazy enemies? So let's go to source three right here. So this is kind of right now setting the stage for where we get this with Amalek, right? When we're traveling um in the desert and we're you know we're already weak and we're already forming ourselves as a nation this is when Amalek decided to come attack us and right away um Moshe through the hands of Hashem is able to bring this beautiful salvation toward our people but right after that and this is source 4 um we see right away that Hashem says because of this like I'm not forgetting this and the words here are so are so significant here i think because if you skip ahead to pasuk tezaim the end of this source 4 but so what does he say? It happens to be that we're going to be at war with Amalek, not just this generation, not just next generation. This is going to be something that continually happens, me, door, lador. This is going to be something that continues throughout different generations in different contexts and all different, um, you know, kind of iterations. So this is very significant. And again, even if you've read these psukim before, I want to draw the very intentional parallel here that's taking Asav, right, the story of Asav. To the story of Amalek, which is now going to take us through the story of of Sha'ul and Shmuel. So I want to now fast forward a little bit in history, right? You've got the five books of the Torah. And then you've got the story of Yehoshua who takes over from Moshe. You've got the period of the Shof team, all the different rulers that happen over several hundred years. um, Where there's all different kinds. There's not really a king. um, And we're kind of struggling to find our way to get stability. And then that brings us into the time of Shmuel. Who ultimately helps anoint David and Shaul and here comes all the crazy fun different kind of kings just to give you a little bit of a sense of where we are in history so we have now fast forwarded many many generations we're now in source six we're in Shmuel Aleph in Tedbav and this story to me is so fascinating because again this really sets the stage for the story of Purim it sounds funny right why would Shmuel Aleph why would there be a story here that sets the stage for Purim but I truly believe that it does many before shouldn't do it I shouldn't say me but um, this is what we're going to learn together so we have Shmuel talking to Shaul and he's kind of giving him a, a task to do, right? He's telling him, um, what does he want him to do? Ko amar Hashem, this is Pasuk Bet. Tzv'akot, pakar t'yet, asher asa amalek v'yisrael. So we're now hearing back from Amalek again. Asher, samlo baderech v'alotob mitzrayim, that they put, they came in your way while you were going to Mitzrayim. Ataleik v'hi kitat amalek v'haram tem et pol asher lo, v'lo tachmol alav, v'hamata mi'ish adisha mi'alol v'ad yoneik mishor v'adzeh mi'gamal v'ad chamor. Very specific instructions, right? If we've ever learned this before, you know. If you were told to kill every single person, right? Do not leave any person. Velo tachmol, don't have. We're people that are so merciful. We're told to not have mercy, right? He's told to not have mercy. Take every single person, all the different cattle, all the different animals and get rid of everybody. As you can see, I'm setting the stage. What's probably going to happen? Not exactly that. So let's move forward just a little bit. To ba, Sha'ul so he goes in and he sees the Canaan, and they actually were very, they were fine toward B'nei Israel. So he wants to get rid of them. He doesn't want to kill anybody more than what Hashem has commanded. Um, in general, our leaders are not meant to be bloodthirsty people. We're meant to keep our people safe. So he says that, he recognizes, and he said, Why don't you guys leave? You guys leave because I'm going to destroy Amalek. And this is here, Pasukh. So what does he do? He kills everybody by That's the second half of the pasuk. But the first half is he takes agag, melech, amalek, chai, and he's living, right? That is explicitly not what Hashem asked. And, He goes on to say, And he goes on to list all these things that Shaul decided, you know what, there's some really good quality stuff here. Let me just take some of this back. I know Hashem told me not to take anything, but I'm just going to take like a something. And this is what I like to call here um, misplaced sensitivity. I talk about this in a lot of areas of life in general, where sometimes I think we believe that we're supposed to be very sensitive. We're supposed to be, again, like compassionate people. There's time and there comes a point, whether that's in our personal lives, or even this is a great example, where this is like misplaced sensitivity. In his mind, and what kind of the Torah seems to describe here is that Shaul wanted to be, he wants to have like, like, Hamol right? Like, he wanted to kind of have a little bit of just like, a little bit of mercy. And this was misplaced mercy, right? Hashem gave him explicit directions. It really wasn't up to him to be the judge, to be the decider of this. Um, but he does decide to anyway. Um, And that's, again, what I'm calling here misplaced sensitivity. It's him being sensitive, but in this case, it really did not result well. And why is that? Unlike the most basic level, he was supposed to wipe out Amalek, and he did not. So that's one piece. And ultimately, even more so, it's not listening to Hashem's will, and it's showing I'm a king that may not really be able to kind of be mechanea myself, to be like, uh, to lower myself, to be able to listen to Hashem's words and do his will. Why is this so important? Because... This really sets the stage for the perm story. Like I said, Shaul is from the tribe of Binyamin, which we later see with Mordecai, right, is also from uh, Mordecai ben Shinnan ben Kish, Ishimini. There's a whole discussion. Is he from the Shevet of Yehuda? Maybe he's partially from Yehuda. There's a whole different discussion. I'm not going to talk about that today. More or less, we agree that Mordecai comes from Shevet ben Yamin. And there's always this very interesting tension that goes on back and forth between Binyamin and Yehuda um, throughout history. We know that in general, when um, when Ben Hamikdash was kind of discussed of where it was going to be resting, it's going to be in partially Yehuda's land, in Binyamin's land. And there's always kind of this tension back and forth between different kinds of leaders. So that also is touching on a whole different other story. But why that's important here is because what we're now seeing is kind of what I described with Ma'asef Avot Siman Labanim, which will which we'll develop a little bit more, but we're seeing now one piece of history where Benjamin or the tribe of Benjamin uh Shaul was supposed to do something to wipe out Amalek. That didn't happen. And now generations later, I'm going to keep going with my really big, just again, to give ourselves a little bit of context. We're not in Shemuel anymore. We've now fast forwarded through all the Malachim, all the Kings. We've now destroyed the first Behamitash where we're setting the stage for the perm story. We're now post post-destruction of the first temple, right? We're in that time between the first and the second temple. So we've now, again, forwarded many generations, Midor-l-dor. we've gone forward in time. And now what do we have? Now we have Agag, Haman Agaghi, right? We have this person descending from Amalek who's now out to get, who is out to get Mordecai, the Yemeni. I think this is so interesting, right? How, when we look at the perm story, we think, who is this evil guy that's coming out of nowhere and out to get the Jewish people? This is not someone that just has their own story that lives in a little silo. It's really something that's continuing from many generations prior. And whether that's God's will, whether that's generations of passing down stories about our Jewish people, probably a combination of both. This is someone with a specific particular vendetta against the Jewish people. And it comes to this point where the pern story, in addition to having this aspect of Nahafokhu, things that seem like they're going to be one way and ends up being the other way, there's also this piece of this like ultimate redemption of the you know the the slaying that never was right. Like the it was supposed to be, there was supposed to be this like total wipeout of Amalek that didn't happen. This is kind of a second chance in history to be able to kind of do a little bit of a redo, to be able to reassess, rediscover. So uh, I want to look at one more piece here, which is, where did I go? Ah, yes, perfect. So I want to look together at source number, is this seven? This looks like seven, yes, perfect. So now we're fast forwarding a little bit forward to bet. I just want to give a little bit more context to this idea of the uh, Binyamin Yehuda, a little bit of context right here. Um, Because what do we know about Mordecai? So we have Shimi, and I want to just explore a little bit who he is, and again, why that might give a little bit of more of a context, or again, even more color to this conversation. So this is source number seven, Shmuel Bet. And what do we see? David is running away. He's running away from Absalom. Shalom. He is not in a great place, right? He is not uh, living this very glorious king life. He's running away. He has a lot of hardships in his life, Um David throughout his entire life and what happens this is like a great example of just like salt on a wound someone that is already suffering like you've been there right like where you're just having a bad day and someone if it's a friend if it's a relative it just says like the perfect thing to make it like even worse and you're like how could this get any worse and you don't even want to ask that right so this is kind of one of those things he's already running away he's having a terrible time a very very hard time and who comes along um He's coming out, and he's not a happy camper either. He's cursing. And again, we hear that he's from Beit Sheol. He's from Benjamin. So this is and ben And he's making this huge display. He's literally pelting rocks at the king. Like at the king, he is throwing rocks at the king and all of his servants. The and he's telling him, you're a terrible, disdainful person. Get away from here. Like, you know, get out of here. And naturally, Vayomer Abishai ben Surya, who's kind of helping David and protecting him, is saying, do you want me to get rid of this guy? This is in Pasuk Tech, Do you want me to kill him? I mean, he's, he's speaking against you, against Hashem. And what does David answer, which just shows such a beautiful um, maturity and understanding and connection with Hashem that David had? He says... Right over here in Pasuk Yod Aleph. Uh, what does he want to say? He goes to say, Listen, what am I going to do? Let him curse me. I don't know why Hashem is doing this, but clearly Hashem is the one who's orchestrating all of these different pieces which to me is just such a beautiful perspective when you're already going through so many hardships and it's such an incredible thing about David. But we see this tension again, this is just one of so many examples of this Yehuda, Binyamin kind of uh, tension that we have back and forth and back and forth throughout our history. I think that gives us again a little bit of context where also there's also this second piece of kind of a redemption here, where Mordecai from the tribe of Binyamin actually comes and has to like uproot maybe his old notions of the rest of B'neeser, and he really has to throw himself at the Jewish people uh, and help all the Yehudim, right? All the Yehudim, that means the tribe of Yehuda or the people of Yehuda or just the Jewish people in general. But there's this sense of obligation and responsibility that Mordechai finally seems to feel that again, perhaps his descendants didn't have. Um, For anyone who hasn't learned about Shemim ben he ends up kind of doing a little bit of like a 180 and again, becoming a little bit more loyal um, and asking for some, again, uh, Rachamim, right? Some mercy. Um, but I just wanted to show this again because I think it gives, once again, more color to this sense that the perm story is not happening on its own. It's happening also to kind of continue and serve as a bookend to so many other pieces in our Jewish history. I want to bring a couple other, a few other pieces. I'm going to skip over Source 8 for now. Um, and I want to just look at a couple different Mepharshan that kind of say a similar idea. We have the Ramban, um, who lives in the late 12th and 13th century. Um, again, I just like to move us through time a little bit. So we're now moving way, way forward, and we're talking about more. Um, uh, we're talking about um, more commentaries that that are now taking the Torah right and looking at it with perspective and history. So again, the idea of Masavot Simelbanim, we continue to see it. And what does he say? He now goes back to sheet. So this is now not talking about Purim. This is not talking about. I'm like this is talking about Asav. Right, so right over here, so this is talking about the time where Yaakov is nervous he's going to meet back up with Esav, and he puts some space between them um, because he's very nervous he, between all of his camps and between all the different things that he has. Um, he wants to make his gift for Esav seem very grand, uh, grandiose. So let's read a little bit together here. Um, what does he want to do? He wants to kind of satiate, um, uh, Aesav and to kind of make him be, wow, like, wow, this, this present that he's bringing me, all these different things he's bringing to appease me are so absolutely incredible. Why does he continue to do this? And why am I bringing this in, in particular? It's for this last line here in the Ramban. Asar Ames, she hamasim what I think Ramban says here that's so interesting that he takes out of this is not kind of, oh, Esav, you know, wasn't a great person. He was, you know, so self-centered. That could be also another point. But the point he's actually making here is that Chazal took from this a different kind of message. They said that from all these different um, tributes and taxes over the different years that Benesdrael is going to kind of fall to in the hands of Asav or Amalek. Or Agag uh, over all these different generations, they're going to have little intervals, little kind of uh, spaces between them. And that's really a little bit more of a Midrashic approach to what this means that there was a space between all the different Adirs. Not that there's like a physical space, but it's really coming to represent through this remiss, through this hint, that there's going to be times, even though we are going to fall to different enemies over the different generations, there's going to be a little bit of space. Um, And I think again, that's also something so relatable. We can handle a lot as people, but we can't handle everything and all at once, right? Hashem is giving us this tiny little hint that yes, in the future, you are going to fall, you're going to falter, you're going to fall at the hands of enemies. But what is Chazal telling us? There's going to be a little bit of space. You're going to be able to recover. You're going to be able to regain your strength. And that is what we see in the story of Purim. We do see this happening many, many generations later. And that really is the story of our people. We're always falling at the hands of the enemies. We're always showing Gevura, strength, amuna, right? Belief in Hashem. And we're always overcoming all of our different uh, difficulties. And I think that's just a beautiful point of the Ramban here, that he takes the story of Esau and Yaakov, this initial split, and then them trying to bring it back together is saying, you might be coming back together now. They're going to split again. Right. And they're going to come back together. They're going to split. But there's going to be space and it's going to be okay. I want to look at one more Ramban over here, which is, again, this one is actually telling more. This is saying, why is it that Yaakov divides um, the camps into all these different parts? So uh, something that we hear a lot is that, well, you know, maybe if Esau attacks and decides to attack one camp, then the rest of the people will be okay. Or if he decides to attack that second camp, then the rest of the people will be okay. So it's kind of like a survival tactic. But there's also one other pe- one other piece here that I also think, and we're going to skip ahead to the end where we have bolded here in source number 10. The Gamzeh, and this is also another thing that that Ramban is saying is another hint. The Gamzeh most siru limchot et Shimenu. So it's not... The, the Gezerah, or what we're talking about when there's going to be these future generations, these future hardships, uh, it's not that Vinay Yisab is trying to wipe our names entirely. And we're going to see, <laughs> excuse me, that all these bad, bad things that come to us are not all of the nation at the entire time. It's going to happen to some people at some times and we do see that and again that is something that has proven to be true over history typically and again thank god for this and we shouldn't know any sorrows at all but we see even now let's say with the ukraine and you know we're seeing jewish people suffering in one part of the world and we see times where again in the holocaust that is all of europe and all of jewry all around the world suffered but we don't often have times and again we shouldn't know these times where every person across the entire globe that's a Jewish person is suffering. Um, so this is kind of what he's saying. Again, it's a remez for the future that there's going to be, even though through these hardships, um, we're going to be able to come back and return. The Sforno says something different also. Um, and he just kind of shows the Spharna a little bit later, we're talking about now, 15th, 16th century, um, is is coming to say also that just this shows how lowly Aseb was, right? This like very physical, uh, you know, display was enough to just kind of get him excited and whatever it was. So just kind of, again, to show and give a little bit of perspective to Asav. So uh, I want to actually come back to our perm story. So this is back to source one. And there's an interesting word here. And anytime that there's a word in the Torah that's only used a couple of times, one times, two times, three times, whatever it is, there's always something interesting to learn in a connection. And this is in Pasu Vav in our source number one, Vayivez Neenavli we said this word be Zion to make something small, something that has value and something that you want to make smaller and remove it from its value. Um, we said that that word was significant here because it meant something so much more to Haman than just Mordecai not bowing down to him. And we actually see that play, that word only one other time in this, again, this form, this iteration in the Tanakh. And that's in the story of A7 Yaakov. In the very first time that we see them, they're born, this is source number 12. I'm going to skip right over to the end here where what happens? They grow up, they are not getting along. And what ends up happening is that Isav sells his Bechorah, or he gives away his Bechorah for some soup when he's so hungry. And we see from there this word in pasuk Megdala, the last one in this parak, the Yaakov noten lechem unizid adashim, bechavayisht vayakam vayilech vayivez, ding, 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 Isav ad ha And in doing so, he was, Mavaiz, right, he, he made a Zion out of this Bechorah, out of this holiness, out of this incredible, this incredible um, bracha that he had out of this B'chorah. To me, this is a really interesting piece because again, this idea of a B'zion, taking something that's valuable and making it less valuable, seeing something that has value, not seeing the value in it is inherently meaningful to me because again, this serves as bookends. The story back of an A'sab, that initial split, that brotherly split where they can't see eye to eye that continues on generations and generations and generations later continues and ends in our perm story here with this final B'zion. And I just want to end in the last two minutes that we have, uh, with one more, uh, source over here, because I find this so interesting. Um, this is now source 14. Um, and this is Masahic 18. I had actually never learned this before. This is totally new. I found this recently and I was shocked. Maybe I'm the only one. So everybody has heard this in my head. They wiped out Haman. They wiped out all of his children. So again, there could be all these other Amalek keys from all the other generations. And we say, when you meet someone from Amalek, you're supposed to kill them if you know that it's them, you know, I don't know how, how many people are putting this into practice, but right, it's something that we always learn in school, what if I meet an Amalek? what do I do, you know, uh, but this is in Masafakit, something so interesting, we talk about a few different people over the time that kind of do some kind of tshuva or returning, and have a little bit of nuance to them, at the end here, what do we see, of course, now I can't find it, where do we go, Up oh. there we go, one second, there we go. Okay. On this second line, right over here. Uh, of Haman's descendants, there were people that ended up learning in Bnei Brak, which to me is just wild, is just crazy that we see even in this crazy black and white situation of these two opposing forces, right? Of this Amalek versus Israel, right, versus Yisrael, over time, all these things that were happening, we finally get this, like, ultimate redemption in our story of the Purim story, where we get this final vinaha fohu, right, we finally get this revenge, and you think, great, let's totally wipe them out, we see that some of his descendants still somehow end up living, and they end up becoming Torah scholars in B'nai B'rach, and I wish we had another half hour to talk, but I'm going to end with this point, which I think is how I started, the story of the Megillah, and in general, people, but let's start with the Megillah, is so incredibly nuanced, right? People who we think are evil, you know, end up having so much more to their stories. And same with people that are kind of in the middle category, Vashti and Ahasuerus, have so much nuance to them. And I think this is a beautiful message to take about Purim, that when you think you know something, oftentimes there's a totally other side of the story to be heard. And that really is the idea of foku, The idea of Haman... kind of the second piece to take away right where you think someone is maybe a little bit evil and you know maybe you get a little bit more context to them um i think that's inherently important when we're reading the story of the magilla that people aren't totally black and white and that brings to me to my last and final point which is that when you think about humans in general and this to me is really like the takeaway message from this story which is we all have people in our lives that are easier more difficult to interact with whatever it is and i think a message here Um, to really take that, again, to me, to me hit home is again, that people are so complicated. We sometimes run to judge and it's usually not coming out of a bad place. It's usually coming out of a place of fear of lack of self, you know, confidence. It's coming out of a place of, you know, being upset or angry or not understanding, but people have so much nuance to them, have so much history, have family history, have genetic history, have environmental history. And the idea of being able to take someone even as evil as Haman, and to be able to say, whoa, he's actually kind of living this ultimate long destiny. He's actually a refu he's actually the, the cure before the maka, before the, the affliction, can kind of just give us a little bit of context. Instead of looking at the person, why are they doing that to me? They're evil, they're terrible. Looking at Lima, like instead of Lama, why is this happening to me? Lima, what for what is this happening to me? Why am I being put in this situation? And I hope with Purim, with all the different things that are coming up with Pesach, with the ends of COVID, and all those pieces, that's the message I hope to be able to take. We're interacting with other people all the time, and really with ourselves too, to realize about yourself that you are so nuanced, right? You have so many different pieces to your story, and instead of being so harsh on yourself, so harsh on others, give yourself a little bit of that context, right? Think about Haman maybe in this new way, this Purim, that you are someone that uh, you know again has nuance and deserves that that not misplaced uh, sensitivity, but actually that really appropriate sensitivity when acting towards others and acting uh, with yourself. Thank you guys so much. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you for sticking around toward the end. I appreciate it. It's very late. Um, and I hope you guys have a wonderful night and a wonderful perm.